This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we just can't start today's show indoors. So let's meet our guest outside. Hi, Florence. Hey, Ryan. Let's sit on this modest patch of grass in front of CPR and Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Everyone, this is Florence Williams. She went on a global journey to learn how getting outside, how being in nature benefits our health. From forest bathing in Japan to neighborhoods with a real nature deficit that have some of the lowest life expectancies in Europe. And maybe this all sounds tree-huggy, but Florence, this is a question that scientists and really whole countries and governments are taking on. It is, because I think there's this growing awareness that people are overly plugged into their devices or stressed out, and people are looking for an antidote. You have a new book called The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. And uh, this project really started for you in Boulder, or maybe more precisely when you had to leave Boulder and moved to Washington, D.C. for your husband's job. Is that right? Yes, it is. I spent two decades living in the Rocky Mountains very happily with mountains and trails outside my back door. I was quite spoiled. And then we moved to Washington, D.C., to the middle of the city, and I I found myself basically freaking out. It was so noisy. It was monochromatic. It was gray. I was like, where are my mountains? And I started to really think about what I had lost in terms of my nature connection and what that meant. What had you lost? I mean, your happiness? Yeah, when I landed in D.C., I realized that I was very sensitive to noise pollution. I felt more anxious. Uh, I had trouble sleeping. You know, a lot of problems that I think people who live in, in urban areas face. We know that there are higher levels of anxiety. There is more depression. Uh, and I started to wonder how much of that really had to do with the external landscape and how that was reflecting my interior emotional landscape. And understanding scientifically why nature is good for us and how good it is for us is an important question for humanity right now, partly because of a milestone we reached in 2008 as a species. Exactly. As of 2008, more people around the globe lived in cities than lived outside of cities. And in fact, one anthropologist proposes that we rename our species Metro Sapiens. We are now an urban species in a whole new habitat. As much as I hate to say it, I think we should go inside because there's a studio audience waiting to meet you. Okay, goodbye grassy lawn, goodbye trees. We're in the CPR performance studio. There's obvious interest in this topic in Colorado, I think, because so many people who live here do so for the outdoors. Uh, Florence, what scientific finding about the power of nature just blew your mind after this global trek? Well, it, I wasn't surprised that nature improves our moods, that it sometimes improves our creativity, right? I think we've all had that experience where we go for a hike or we go for a walk. We're listening to the birds sing and we get a cool idea or maybe we can solve a problem that we've been thinking about. But I was surprised by the science of awe or what happens to us when we see something beautiful and how that can actually change our behavior in ways that make us more generous that make us more pro-social. Um, and it, it sort of makes sense when you experience something awesome, 
your own personal problems recede. I'm sure we have that feeling where, you know, something surprises you, like an incredible full moon rising from the horizon that you don't expect to see. It, it takes your breath away for a minute. You stop thinking whatever thoughts are in your head. And in fact, you feel more connected, I think, to the world around you. And at the same time, it turns out, we feel more connected to our communities and to each other. Right. Studies have borne out that awe turns us into nicer people, better <laughs> people. Nicer. Yeah. And in, in this way, it's interesting. You know, I started to think about how nature actually is good for civilization. You know, I think we tend to think that those things are opposite. The, the, the civilization mowing over <laughs> a, a, a forest and, and building a city is progress. You're, you're saying these things don't have to be at odds. Yeah. I mean, civilization maybe isn't always good for nature. But when we experience time outdoors, it makes us behave better to each other. Uh, tell me about how that's borne out. Well, uh, you can see this in some research experiments and laboratories, for example, where a researcher will show photographs uh, to subjects, for example, of a, of a whale jumping or of a waterfall. And they'll show other subjects a picture of a shopping mall okay. or a freeway. And it's the people who are viewing the nature photos who will behave more generously in certain psychology games. They'll give away more lottery tickets. <laughs> um, they'll fold more paper airplanes for earthquake victims. Uh, and, and this is after they view the nature photos, but not necessarily after they view the shopping mall. Maybe people are thinking, duh. <laughs> of course, being outside is good for you. Thoreau could have told you that. Uh, but you met one researcher who says studying the impacts of the natural world on the brain is actually a scandalously new idea. That's right. It's really only been in the last couple of decades that researchers have been able to look inside our brains, to scan our brains, to do images, to actually measure our physiology in the field. So, you know, these ideas that were promoted by the romantics, and, and sometimes we dismiss them as being kind of woolly ideas, hmm. have now really been confirmed by the neuroscience and by the psychology. And so it's really giving, I think, new credence to what for many of us seemed intuitive. What was the strangest experience you had? Oh, probably in South Korea. Uh, the forests in South Korea are, are sort of wonderfully redolent. I mean, I, I describe it in the book as you walk into this forest and it, it smells like a combination sort of Christmas tree and vaporub. And in fact, the South Koreans so love this invigorating smell that they have marketed it in all kinds of products. <laughs> and I was really surprised by some of those. For example, you can buy toothpaste that smells like a cypress forest. Um, you can buy panty liners that smell <laughs> like a cypress forest. Um, so I think that the degree to which, you know, that culture has really appropriated, you know, this idea of the health benefits of nature, you know, in this kind of fun way surprised me. Korea, along with Japan, have forest bathing as part of their tradition and frankly, as part of their government research, government support. Tell me about forest bathing, which has different names. It's called Shinrin-yoku, I think, in Japan and yes. something else in Korea. I think actually in South Korea, they call you know Shinrin-yoku also or forest bathing. And it's not actually a very old cultural practice. Oh. Um, we might think of it that way. But, but really, it's only been promoted since the 1980s, first by the Japanese government, really as a response to how stressed out people were in Tokyo, where workers have the longest hours, longest office hours really on the planet. In fact, the Japanese have a word for what it means to die literally die <laughs> literally. from overwork. Yes. Yes, they do. And so I think the government was very uh, eager to try to find ways to help this population 
recover from stress. And so the, the idea with forest bathing does not involve disrobing <laughs> in any way. But the idea is that really you open up all of your senses. So you really are mindful in that space. You pay attention to the bird song or the sounds. You pay attention to the way the breeze might feel on your face or the moss might feel in your fingers. Um, you might drink some bark tea made from the forest. And in doing that, it turns out it's a shortcut to stress recovery. There's something about being mindful in the space that really takes us out of kind of our, our troubled mind and puts us in this in this kind of new zone. And of course, we know mindfulness, right, has been studied a lot. Mm. It's been well shown to be great for people's well-being. But mindfulness in a meditation setting isn't always so easy for everyone to access. Sitting in your living room, in other words. Sitting in your living room and trying to empty your mind, right? It's hard to do. But when we're out in nature, it's easy. You know, there's a lot to draw our attention to the sounds and the sights and the smells around us. And that's really good for our brains. And Japan and Korea are investing in this. This isn't seen as something out there, something other. That's right. The forest agencies in both of those countries have really embraced this idea. Uh, Japan now has something like 48 designated forest therapy trails. And in South Korea, they have entire forests that they've designated as healing forests. And at the same time, they're training 500 healing rangers who can take groups of people out to help facilitate this kind of opening of the senses. And they're running programs for everyone from cancer patients to school bullies. Um, what do you mean? They, they take bullies into the forest? Yeah, there's actually – so there's something called a happy train, <laughs> which leaves downtown Seoul, heads to the woods, and, and they put school bullies and the kids they bully on this train, ship them out to the forest for three days, and then it turns out by the end of three days, they're getting along. It sounds a little too pat. I know. It Did... sounds kind of perfect. Uh-huh. Um, I was skeptical of some of the science at first because I thought, well, of course people feel well when they're walking around a forest because they're exercising. Or they're away from work. And they're away from work. Maybe they're away from air pollution. You know, they're away from some of the kind of, um, you know, annoyances of the city. But mostly I thought it was an exercise effect. And exercise has been really well documented to improve people's well-being, to reduce stress levels. That, that is, if you're pressure. walking in the forest, you're walking. Right, it's exercise. Is it really the forest that's doing anything? Exactly. But the researchers, you know, also thought of this, and they've tried to control for it, by sending similar groups of people to walk around urban areas for the same amount of time, the same distance. And yet they're only seeing these kind of positive physiological effects in the forest walkers. And what they're measuring are things like a 4% reduction in heart rate, 2% reduction in blood pressure, and this one's interesting to me, a 16% drop in the stress hormone cortisol. And they're really only seeing that in the people who are walking around nature. 16% drop in cortisol. Yeah. And if we have lots of cortisol pumping through us, what's the effect of that? Well, cortisol is one of the stress hormones that our body puts out. Um, there are a few of them. And it's not a super simple kind of um, you know, formula where if you put out a lot of cortisol, it means you're stressed out. But it is one marker for stress. Uh, to these forests, I think that there are forest doctors as well in Japan. Is that right? Actually, quite a few countries now, including ours, have doctors who are prescribing time in nature to their patients. My guest is Florence Williams, author of The Nature Fix. It's just out in paperback. We spoke in front of an audience in CPR's performance studio. 
Williams says the U.S. is a little behind other countries when it comes to using nature as preventive medicine. In countries like Finland, researchers have really looked specifically at how to prevent depression by using time and nature. And they've come up with a really specific recommendation. And what they're saying in Finland is that in order to prevent depression, they think that citizens should go out into nature for a minimum dose of five hours a month. And that translates to about twice a week of 30 to 40 minutes. And if you can get 10 hours a month in nature, that's even better. But if you can get five hours a month, they really think you can help prevent depression that way. Is this the dosage you've settled on for yourself? (laughs) No, I need way more. (laughs) (laughs) I need way more than that. (laughs) It's funny you mentioned Finland because uh, your trip there reveals that the the Finns don't really have property boundaries in the way that we do in the United States? In other words, you could walk from one side of Finland to the other and never be trespassing. Yeah, they have this really cool system of roaming rights. It's not just in Finland. It's actually in many countries in in Europe. Uh, And and it says that you really have a right to tromp across anyone's private property as long as you don't light a fire. Uh, But you you really have a right to go wherever you want. They don't have public lands in the way we have here. Mm. Um, So it's it's a different kind of, I think, democratized space. But it's, it's really a wonderful idea if you think about it. It's kind of like the whole horizon can be yours and you can go anywhere you want. It's not something that I imagine would fly, particularly in the <laughs> West. Not in Montana. But how, how, how has this uh, changed perhaps your own view of, say, public lands in the United States or a national park of some kind? Well, it's made me really appreciate them and really value them. Um, I think America is unique. Uh, We were certainly one of the first countries to have national parks, and and now we have wilderness areas. These are places where you can really find solitude, and that's not necessarily something you would find tromping across someone's farm in Western Europe. So I think it's very special. I've I've come to really appreciate the benefits of that solitude. Um, You know, now living in Washington, D.C., and and being so annoyed by the noise as I am, um, I just think we're very, very fortunate in this country. And um, I think if if we care about our solitude and if we care about our mental health, we have to figure out ways to both keep those lands protected, but also provide access for everyone to go use those lands. Because there is... Something of a gap between who has access to the outdoors consistently. Well, there really is. You know, it's a social justice issue. Um, typically, people who use national parks and wilderness areas um, come from privileged backgrounds. And we need to really figure out how to get urban populations out. We know that urban kids, for example, live very stressful lives. There's a lot of toxic stress in our neighborhoods and in our cities. Uh, it's very helpful for urbanites not just to have access to wilderness areas and to national parks, but also to figure out how to make nature higher quality where they live. In the city. In the city. So, uh, you know, sometimes I think of our allocation to nature um, almost like a food pyramid. You know, we can think of it as a nature pyramid. And really our bread and butter is our urban nature. It's our nearby nature. Is it a nice lawn? Is it a beautiful park? It can be beautiful city parks. It can even be small pocket parks. It can be trees on our streets and in our neighborhoods. We know that that's correlated to health benefits. Even things like greening schoolyards has been shown in studies to improve test scores. And the idea at the top of the pyramid is the trip to Yosemite. Exactly. Okay. And maybe that's a once a year or even once in a lifetime. But, you know, those wilderness area trips, I think, are are critical at certain times in our lives. And I spent time with 
veterans, for example, with post-traumatic stress for this book. I spent time with people who've suffered from trauma. There are times in our lives when we really need someplace very, very special to help us recover. And also certain transitions in our lives. You know, there used to be a lot of ritualized nature experiences and cultures that valued this transition from adolescence to adulthood. It's something we've really lost. Well, throughout time, you know, many cultures have time in the wilderness for adolescence. It's solo time. It's time for reflection. It's time where there's sometimes there's a little bit of hardship where a kid is expected to really go out into the wilderness and figure out who they are, what their place is in their culture. It's a passageway to adulthood for so many cultures. And yet that's something we've completely lost in modern society. You talk about solitude in places like national parks, but you don't necessarily find silence in those places. In fact, you you write pretty extensively about how rare silence is, even in what we think of as the most remote spots in this country. Yeah, I really started to think about noise (laughs) for this book, partly because I learned that I am sensitive to noise. Uh, And I learned that when I moved to Washington, D.C. In fact, I'm not really proud of this, but there is a personality trait that makes you more sensitive to noise, and that trait is neurosis. (laughs) I didn't know I I had that trait or that I was sensitive, but it turns out I do. Uh, And so I became very interested in, uh, for example, there are sound engineers who will take their microphones out to national parks all over the country, and they'll try to find places where all you can hear are natural sounds. And in fact, they have an incredibly hard time doing it. There are very few spots in in the country where you don't hear an airplane for more than 15 minutes. Um, The quietest place in this country um, has been shown to be in a rainforest. I think it's in the Cascades in the Northwest. Uh, And so now people are actually... Um, making pilgrimages to that spot because it's so special not to hear an airplane for 15 minutes. I hope they're quiet when they get there. (laughs) I hope so, too. Maybe they bring their boom boxes. I don't know. We've reported on this kind of research into noise in Rocky Mountain National Park. You can find that at our website, CPR.org. To the idea of urban nature... Uh, and access to that nature for everyone. I think that your trip to Scotland is illustrative of this. Tell us about this neighborhood in Scotland that is just down and out economically, socially, and in which an injection of nature seems to be making a difference. The city of Glasgow is one of the poorest cities uh, in Europe, actually. And the life expectancy there is much lower than in other cities in in Scotland. Uh, and uh, and yet it's a very green place. The problem is that a lot of the woodlands there um, are not very accessible for people to use because they've been kind of the um, territory of of hoodlums, for example, drug dealing, you know, going on in these forests. Um, and yet the Scottish government really understands the importance of nature access for people, and in fact has issued a new policy directive stating that everyone in the country has a right to live within 400 meters of a woodland. This has been declared a human right it's in Scotland. It's a human right in Scotland. And that's about a quarter of a mile. Proximity to nature. Proximity to nature. And yet some of the woods are not so welcoming. And so now there's being a, a big effort to clean up the woods. I, I visited one program in there for people who have depression. And it's a 12-week program in the woods. And I went into the woods with them near these housing projects in Glasgow. And the trees are covered with graffiti. You know, it's not something that oh. we're really used to seeing. And yet there's a big effort to clean them up. Um, there are new rangers who are leading programs for preschoolers and for the elderly. And of course, if you live in this neighborhood and you see a bunch of preschoolers in 
the woods, you're going to feel a lot better about going there. I'm fascinated by some of the research that has happened around public housing in this country, around people who have a view, for instance, of nature from their 14th story window and those that don't. Yeah, I'm really interested in those window studies, partly because they show that just even a little dose of nature from a window can make a difference. Uh, in, in one series of studies looking at housing projects in Chicago, um, the researchers looked at people who, whose windows faced yards with greenery and trees and people who lived on the other side of the building whose windows faced other housing projects. And what they found, they were actually focused on children in this study. What they found is that the children with the pretty window views, the nature window views, had fewer instances of um, aggression. They were better at self-regulation. Um, they were better at concentration and attention. But interestingly, there was a gender effect to that. Oh. And the effects were strongest in girls. And the researchers were wondering why that was. And what they ended up concluding was that um, these housing projects are actually so dangerous that the girls spend more time at home. They're not really allowed out as much. And so the window effects were stronger for the girls who spent more time inside. The window effect makes me think of what happened to your father as you were writing this book. Tell us about him. My father, uh, about five years ago when I was writing the book, he was 75 years old. He was walking to work uh, outside of Washington, D.C., and he was hit by a car going 35 miles an hour. He suffered a traumatic brain injury and seven broken bones, um, and he was in a brain rehabilitation center um, for about three months. And I was doing a lot of research for the book at the time, including a really important study from the 1980s that showed that hospital patients with a window view were released earlier from surgery and requested fewer pain medications. Uh, and, and their nurses also reported that they had better attitudes. They were just recovering faster. And of course, Florence Nightingale really understood this, you know, 100 years ago. She knew that patients did well with, with natural daylight and fresh air. But we, so many of our hospitals now don't seem to have remembered those lessons. So, so I have a picture of you <laughs> going up to the nurse's station exactly. and demanding nature for your father. <laughs> exactly. You should have seen me in my kids' schools. I was just as bad. Yeah, I was, I was like, my dad needs a window view. Let's get him one. And, and we did. And he did really well. And, and in fact, I also spent some time wheeling him into the gardens of the hospital. How's he doing? He's doing great. I'm happy to tell you. He's now walking four miles a day, often in nature. <laughs> are hospitals starting to pay attention to this again? Yeah, I think they really are. It's taken a while to sort of come back to where they were 100 and 150 years ago. Um, but I'm happy to say there's a movement to create therapeutic gardens in many hospitals. I think that the studies have shown that this is helpful not only to patients, but also to families who are under tremendous stress, right, when, when one of their family members is ill. And it's also important for the hospital staff. So one recent study found that when nurses and doctors take their breaks outside, they go back to work to make fewer errors. We know that hospital errors are a really big deal. A special Colorado Matters today about The Nature Fix. That's the title of Florence Williams's book, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. Williams went on a global journey to see how different countries apply this science to improve people's health. I was skeptical of the scientists who do this research, whether they're crunchy granola types predisposed to believe in the benefits of the outdoors. I think, you know, bias in science is a real thing, and it's a big deal. And I think that's definitely true with some of these scientists. Um, I did spend time with a cognitive neuroscientist. He's a big backpacker and a big river runner. 
And he came to this topic because he noticed he was having his best ideas after a backpacking trip. And so he wanted to study it and image the brain. So certainly he came with that kind of predisposition. But there are other researchers I talked to who said, I didn't like nature. I didn't like trees. You know, I was not prepared to see these results be as powerful as they were including a guy I interviewed in Toronto who's making an app. He's a young guy, did not grow up with nature, loves technology. He's Um, like a video game freak. He's a video game freak. He wants to make an app, um, you know, that can help people recover from stress. And he did not know nature might be a viable option for this until he sort of got into the literature and thought, well, maybe I should make some videos of, you know, nature scenes. And he was astounded by the effects. And now he tries to go outside more. I have to think of the people who don't like to be in nature. Mm-hmm. And I have to think about whether we're, in a way, being a bit too precious here. Because at the point we got indoors and pumas weren't chasing us <laughs> anymore, didn't we actually become a lot safer and a lot healthier? There has to be some tension here around the fact that our indoor lives are also making our lives longer. I mean, look at life expectancies You know, back in the heyday when we were out and about. Well, and, you know, even if you look at benign, nice nature, not everyone likes it, right? So it was Woody Allen who said, um, I like nature, I just don't want any of it on me. (laughs) He also said, uh, worrying is my exercise. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, on on one level, we are much better off, you know, we're not chased by pumas. Um, But on the other hand, we don't have ways to recover from stress as easily as we used to, apparently, when we lived outside in nature. So if you think about it, our bodies are really designed to have kind of bursts of high stress to help us survive. You know, when we see a snake, we can respond. We can have fight or flight response to that. But after that fear, we would gather around the fire with our close family members, and we would look at the stars, and maybe we'd see a sunset before then. We had these natural ways for our stress levels to come down. In urban life today, stress is kind of at a steady drip. I was going to say it's a hum constantly in the background of my life. Exactly. We have more sort of low-level chronic stress. And that actually takes a huge toll on our health. And so that's why we see very high rates of cardiovascular disease. It's why we see things like stroke and um, other stress-related diseases that are very high, especially in urban populations. So there are rural populations that have a lot of health problems, too. There's actually a lot of depression in rural areas. And part of that is really an economic effect, right? So healthcare is not as available, not as good when you get into rural areas. So I don't want to imply that, you know, if you live somewhere beautiful, you're going to be much better off. Mm. I think there are a lot of factors at play. The fact is there are benefits and drawbacks to both the urban and the rural living. That's right. And I I think that's why people are interested in, you know, kind of understanding, look, the reality is most of us do live in cities. We live these busy, stressful lives. Let's make these cities as livable as possible. Okay, we have to talk about Singapore then. You visit Singapore, and it's like nature is shoved into every crack (laughs) and, and corner possible. I was really interested in Singapore because it's a country of the future. Singapore is the third densest. It's both a city and a country. It's the third densest city on the planet. Uh, It's had incredible population explosion in the last 20 years. And yet at the same time, this is a city that's actually increased its green space by 50%. That just seems impossible. I know. It's very counterintuitive because where I live in Washington, D.C., we've lost so much tree cover and so much green space in that same time. But in Singapore, they have policies, for example, that state that if you're going to build an office building, you have to more than replace the green space that you take up. 
And so they do this in some creative ways. So there are living gardens, vertical gardens on the outside walls of these towers. Oh, I see. You build gardens up. You build gardens up and out on the roofs. You build gardens inside the buildings. So there are these wonderful kind of indoor gardens and workspaces where people can go and have lunch or have their meetings. I stayed in a hotel in downtown Singapore that I thought looked like a chia plant. <laughs> it was like pulsing and alive, and there were butterflies landing in it. Wow, it makes me think of the Green Roof Initiative that Denver just recently passed. Yeah, that's a wonderful program. What movements uh, towards this have you seen in the United States or elsewhere in the world that impressed you? Well, there's a whole biophilic cities movement. In my city in Washington, D.C., it's actually quite robust. Biophilic? Biophilic, which means um, a love of living things. Mm. Uh, That's a a term that was really popularized by Harvard entomologist E.O. Wilson. Um, Biophilia being kind of this idea that we all have an innate love for living things, you know, because we evolved in nature. It's where our brains and perceptual systems are comfortable. Um, And so it's an effort to kind of humanize the urban landscape um, with things like bioswales to collect rainwater water, more trees being planted, more green rooftops. And I think we're seeing a lot more attention being paid to creating new higher quality parks because they attract young people, they attract workers, and they make people want to stay in cities. I want to get back to why and how being in nature is good for us. What has science proven that changes in our minds and our bodies because we're outside? We've talked about a few examples. Cortisol levels might lower. What's been proven about the benefits to my health? I think proven is a tricky word when you're talking about science. I think the scientists would say, well, we have very strong correlations. (laughs) So I'm just going to qualify that. But the suggestions are that, yes, it really seems to lower our stress levels except for the small percentage of people like Woody Allen, (laughs) who will probably never really calm down in nature (laughs) if there are bugs around. It's been shown really to lower our stress levels, to change our physiology in some ways in terms of our heart rate, right, and the ways our hearts respond to stress. It's also been shown to alleviate symptoms of ADHD. So kids who have ADHD seem to exhibit fewer symptoms when they're outside. It seems to sharpen some of our cognition in terms of test taking. There's a neuroscientist at the University of Utah um, who did a study showing a 50% improvement on measures of creativity after time outside. And there are other psychologists who have shown that after even just 50-minute walks in an arboretum, we improve our short-term memories. For example, memorizing a string of digits. If we spend time in nature, we're much better at that task. At one point on this journey, you breathe in, am I saying this right, phytoncytes? Yes. Phytoncytes. Uh, You breathe these in, and your blood pressure dropped 12 points. Yes. (laughs) What what are these magic phytoncytes? (laughs) Phytoncytes are aerosols, chemicals that are, are emitted by trees, and they emit them to ward off pests. So... There are certain smells that they give off, these limonenes and terpenes, that smell that's like a vapor rub when you're in a cypress forest. Those are actually the smells of phytoncides. But they also seem to have very powerful anti-infective properties. 
when breathed in by humans. One researcher who I visited in Japan has shown that when people inhale some of these scents, they actually increase their production of immune cells called killer T cells, which are important for fighting cancer. And he he proved this in sort of an interesting way. He locked people in a hotel room, different hotel rooms. And in some of those rooms, he misted the aerosols from these trees, these phytoncides. In other hotel rooms, he just misted water. And then he analyzed their blood. And in the rooms with these tree mists, the killer T cells improved something like 30%. And what's interesting is that those levels remained elevated in people's bloodstreams for up to 30 days. Oh, the effects were long-lasting. They were long-lasting. They were highest after seven days, but they still remained elevated after 30 days. And so this researcher, his name is Dr. Ching Li, he told me that he goes into the woods every three weeks as a minimum (laughs) just to try to boost his own immune system. But if you can go every seven days, he's like, that's even better. What is geosmin? Geosmin is the smell of soil after a rain. I think we all can sort of imagine what that smell is. We can all crave that. We can crave that smell. It's a wonderful smell. It's like that rich soil smell. And that's also been shown to kind of reduce stress levels in some people. And some people believe it boosts their immune system as well. Is there a difference to my health if I stare at a picture of a tree versus staring at an actual tree? That is, could we create virtual nature and make ourselves healthier? It looks like there is a spectrum of health effects. There's sort of a dose curve. So if we look at a picture of a tree or if we look out of our window at a tree, there are some benefits associated with that. But if you can actually get outside and engage all of your senses so that you're smelling the tree and maybe you're feeling the tree and you're hearing the birds who are nesting in the tree, you'll have bigger effects. So perhaps a bigger boost to um, your mood, a bigger boost to your concentration. But it's interesting to me, and I was skeptical of this too. I thought, well, really, can a picture really make a difference? Mm -hmm. But in fact, studies have shown that it does. And because of those studies, that's why now when we go to the dentist's office (laughs) and we're back in the chair and there's a drill going in our mouth, there's sometimes a picture of the Rocky Mountains on the ceiling, (laughs) right? There's something about that that just helps us relax and maybe makes the pain even feel a little bit less strong. Journalist Florence Williams has written The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. We're talking about her worldwide trek to learn about the science of nature as medicine. Williams used to live in Boulder, then moved to Washington, D.C. a few years ago. I asked her how the book has changed her own life. You know, I I lived in the Rocky Mountains for a long time, and I was kind of a snob about nature. I thought, well, I really need a mountaintop with snow on it and not very many people on the trail in order to really feel like I'm in nature. But because I learned that there are so many benefits, even from, you know, more urban nature, I now have a much more generous definition of nature. I can appreciate my parks, even though they are sometimes noisy. I know that they're helping me. But I also know that to maximize the benefits of being in those urban parks, I need to be more mindful in that space. So I used to sometimes wear my earbuds, right? Or I would Mm. multitask. I would make a phone call or listen to a podcast or listen to your radio show while I was on the trail. Heaven forbid. I'm so sorry. Heaven forbid. (laughs) (laughs) And now I take those earbuds out because I know I'm going to get a better mental health boost if I really try to be present. 
and and I'll make myself. You, you have you have to sort of cultivate this. It's not sort of a natural thing. I have to you know stop kind of processing my to do list and thinking about what's for dinner. You know, which is all how I think we start out on our walks. Right? We have to transition out of that. But if we make an effort to say, oh, what birds are in the trees today? I wonder if I can see that you know nesting pair of hawks, or um, you know what what are the leaves doing? How how far out are they budding? You know, it's like I just ask myself some questions that pull my sensory and perceptual systems into the environment. You're like maximizing your nature dose. <laughs> I'm trying to. Ma- I, now that I know, now that I know how to do it <laughs> and I know I need it, it really does help me out. You know, I was in the park after reading your book. I'm and so I, glad. <laughs> and I, I did something I'd really never done before. And this, this may be really sad to reveal, but I just went up to a tree that was blossoming and I smelled it. I literally stopped and smelled the roses. And what happened? Uh, I could immediately feel an effect of calming when I brought in that scent. Hmm. And I thought, you know, when I go out in nature, um, and I, I'm more on the Woody Allen side, I think, than, <laughs> than the you side of things, I often have the, the earbuds in. Uh, I might be talking on the phone. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to make this about using all my senses there. Yeah, so one tip, and, and you mentioned it, is really using your sense of smell. So it turns out that our olfactory sense, it's our only sense that goes straight to the brain. There's kind of this direct pathway to the brain. And I think we've all had this experience where you smell something and you're instantly in a better – or you're instantly in a different place. You know, maybe you're remembering something from your childhood or your mood shifts very dramatically sometimes when you smell something. Of course, retail stores have figured this out. That's why sometimes you walk into a store and it smells like citrus. You know, that's because psychology shows that if you smell citrus, you will spend more money. (laughs) But so now when I'm on the trail, I'm constantly grabbing chunks of evergreen needles or pieces of, you know, leaves and I'm crushing them and I'm smelling them. And it is. It's just that kind of instant little boost. I also think that maybe paying attention to the sound of things is important. Uh, If it's more than the drone of traffic from a nearby freeway, you write about the effects of birdsong on our psychology. This is a crazy fact, quoting from your book. Humans share more genes governing speech with songbirds than we do with other primates? Hmm. What? (laughs) Well, you know, birds have developed this language. Right. That's how they communicate is through song. Humans have also developed a very sophisticated sense of language. And that part of our brain is actually really similar in those two species. Uh, They didn't necessarily evolve from each other. They sort of evolved spontaneously in these different branches of two species. But in fact, our brains are built to hear complicated song and complicated language. And so when we hear birdsong, our brains are on some level paying attention. Uh, and, and when we hear birdsong, we also know, even subconsciously, that something is right with the world because things are okay. It's when we don't hear the birdsong that maybe a huge storm is coming or something bad, you know, some big predator is, is coming. Um, so on some level, there's this subconscious level of comfort. But we know from studies, too, that if you pipe a birdsong into, for example, school classrooms, the students are more alert. Huh. And there are now actually gas stations in Europe that are piping birdsong into the bathrooms in order to make a more pleasant experience. I, I, I find a hard time believing that. It's like, how pleasant an experience can that be, really? But um, apparently it helps. <laughs> Have you met those people who are calmed by the sounds of the city? Yeah, I do have a friend who grew up in a city. Uh, He loves the sound of 14th Street in New York City. And he recorded it 
on on his recorder and he now plays that tape when he goes to bed. <laughs> yeah, that's what helps him feel relaxed. There is some sense there that it might be familiarity with a place too that's comforting, maybe beyond the nature connection. Exactly. And I think if it's low enough and sort of background enough, we can get used to many different kinds of urban sounds. Um, the, the problem is when there are really blaring sounds or when there are loud growling sounds, for example, an airplane mm. or a big diesel truck um, outside your street, there's something in our brains that thinks, oh, loud roar, that might be a predator. And even when we're sleeping, our body shows a stress response to those sounds. So if I'm sound asleep and a 747 flies over, there will be some representation in my physiology. Your respiration will increase. Your heart rate will increase. And if you live under a flight path or on an urban next to a very busy road, over time, that chronic stress has been shown to increase your risk of stress-related diseases later on. The silliest you must have looked uh, during (laughs) this global journey to find out why nature is good for us is when you donned a special cap. Yes. In, in, in the outdoors. It's kind of like a, an old-time movie swimming cap. I did some experiments on myself for this book, and one of them is that I, I did wear this kind of dorky bathing cap kind of contraption <laughs> with electrodes sticking out of it. Um, it was a portable EEG cap for electroencephalography, measures brain waves. Uh, and I wore this all over the place. And in fact, my kids, I think, were mortified. They're teenagers. Um, I wore this cap walking around the streets of D.C. I wore it in city streets. Um, I wore it in wilderness areas. And I was really curious to know what kind of brainwaves I was producing in those different environments. What kind of brainwaves? What kind of brainwaves. So I was particularly interested in alpha waves. So alpha waves are sort of the holy grail of brainwave states. They're associated with a state of calm and alert Um, They're very sought after, and they're hard to get. I had a hard time producing alpha waves even when I was in a city park. And I think that's partly because I found those city parks noisy. So I heard people's radios, and I heard airplanes, and it sort of annoyed me. And it's very hard to produce alpha waves when you are annoyed. (laughs) And because I'm neurotic, I get annoyed. Um, But when I wore that brain cap in the wilderness, uh, including in Montana in the wilderness, uh, on a lake in Maine, I was able to actually generate alpha waves. And in fact, the, the software from this brain cap, um, you know, it came back to me and it said, oh, you have an uncanny ability to become relaxed even with your eyes open. And I just thought, yes, I have totally fooled it. <laughs> <laughs> You've taken other measurements of your life. I think of a device called an, is it an atholometer? Athelometer? Oh, yes, athelometer. What, what, what did this tell you about yourself? That was measuring air pollution. So it measures specifically black carbon, um, which is a molecule that's given off by combustion engines, by burning fossil fuels. Um, I wanted to know how much pollution there was in my neighborhood, in my kids' schools' parking lots, where there are often kind of diesel buses idling. Um, And so that's another thing. It it looked like this little monkey hand coming out of my shirt, another way in which my kids were embarrassed. And in fact, I did record pretty high levels, sadly, pretty high levels of black carbon in my city. And we know that black carbon is associated with, with respiratory diseases and actually with death. So it's kind of a big deal. What do you want people to take away from this book? And maybe people in powerful positions, you know, who decide what cities look like and feel like and do. 
Well, I do hope that there is a lesson here for city planners and for city officials that all of us deserve time and access to nature, that it is something that increases our human happiness and our human potential, that it's not a luxury, but that it's actually a necessity for human health and well-being. So we need more parks for people. We need better quality parks. We need more recess in schools, and we need greener school environments. I think it's really important to reach our institutions. I'd love to reach the medical community so that doctors and mental health professionals are recommending time in nature to their patients. But for individuals, what I have found is that many of us tend to undervalue the benefits of nature. We think watching a TV show or eating a tub of ice cream will make us feel great, and it does for a while. Um, But what the research has really shown me in this book is that when we spend time in nature, it's incredibly good for us. And we all should spend a little more time paying attention to how we feel in different environments. So some of us may love the ocean. Some of us may love the forest. Know the places that make you feel terrific and go there as often as you can. Take two trees and call me in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad to see you're absorbing the lessons of this book. (laughs) Florence, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Journalist Florence Williams has written The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. It's out in paperback. Special thanks to Andrea Dukakis and Matt Hers. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.